morning to all of you. It's good to be with you. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And this morning we are looking at verses 3 through 6. So you know the sermon is going to be super long. <laughs> Some nervous laughs out there. <laughs> I guess is he for real? Well, maybe, maybe just a tiny bit longer than normal. Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. Let's uh, read God's word. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That there be no filthiness, no, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let us ask the Lord for his help. Father, we need you to be our teacher this morning. We need you to take the truths of your word and to plant them deep within our hearts. We cannot do this apart from you. So we dedicate this time to you and we trust that you will do your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it was about seven, seven years ago while I was pastoring a church in a different state, far away from here, that a man and a woman, both church attenders at that moment, approached me with the following request. We want to get married. Can you do it? Now, at first, this sounded like a, a wonderful thing. You always want to hear those words. But there was a fundamental problem happening in their lives. This man and this woman were living together in sexual immorality. And I was immediately reminded of a verse similar to the one we just read in which Paul says the following, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. So I told him no. Suffice it to say that my unwillingness to comply unleashed a series of unfortunate events, very interesting events, but I will save that for the end. Now consider with me verse five once again of Ephesians five, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Of this, my friends, you may be sure. 
or as the NASB Bible puts it, for this you know with certainty. Let me state my objective for today's sermon. I want you to go home fully convinced that this is true. And my prayer is that this sermon will have its intended effect in all of us. For some of us, this will be a reminder of God's grace upon our lives, and you will be grateful. Yet for others, this will be an occasion for proper fear. But I will not be the one to determine what the Spirit does with what you hear today. But I I am confident of this. He will accomplish his purpose in us. When the Apostle John tells us in his gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's telling us that Jesus Christ came into this world for a very specific purpose. Jesus did not come into this world to make a plan on the go. Jesus came to accomplish an eternal plan established in the very mind of God from the before the foundation of the world. What was that divinely crafted plan? We see it in many places, but for the sake of time, I will point out two verses. First, Ephesians 1, 4. We read that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. And then in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 14, we read that Jesus gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did Jesus come into this world to be born, to live, to die, and to rise again from the dead? He did all that in order to redeem and create a brand new humanity, namely the church. This was God's eternal purpose. And this new humanity that we call the church is to be characterized by one thing. You know the word. Holiness. You couldn't stand the silence. (laughs) Holiness. Why? Not because we are good people. For none of us are good. Rather, the proper answer is found in Ephesians 4.24, where we read that the church is made up of redeemed individuals, all of whom have been recreated by the Holy Spirit after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is not up for debate, my brothers and sisters. This is a reality. This is who we are in Christ Jesus, saved, forgiven, cleansed, set apart by God to reflect him on earth. That is what the church is all about. We are called to be imitators of God as beloved children and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the reality in which we now live. All of us who profess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a matter of fact. The word of God is not asking us if this is what we want to be. The word of God is telling us that this is who we are in Christ Jesus by the power and the presence of the spirit. Since all of this is absolutely true, then Paul can say with absolute confidence that those who do not live their lives in pursuit of holiness, growing in sanctification, 
but practice sinful behavior will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are some of the strongest words you will ever read in all the Bible. What I want to do for the rest of our time is to answer one question. Why is this the case? Why is it that people who practice immorality and sinful living will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul will give us four reasons. And then we will finish by considering three urgent words of exhortation. But before I get into the specifics, let me try to explain how I understand these verses. Paul mentions six vices or sins. Here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Each one of them could be defined separately, I guess, and that would be beneficial. That would be proper. Today, however, I'll not, I will not do that, and here's why. All these vices have a comprehensive sense to them. In other words, the vices included on this list, such as sexual immorality or impurity, are all inclusive. Paul is not seeking to be specific. Rather, he's seeking to be general so that no exceptions are allowed. Later on in the sermon, I will spend a bit more time looking at one particular vice listed here that I believe is crucial. But now let me just give you the three general categories that Paul has in view. This is it. Your thoughts, your deeds, your words, your thoughts, your deeds, your words, our imitation of God as beloved children involves all three words, thoughts, and deeds. In short, imitating God involves all of you. There are no corners in your life over which God has no prerogative. When God redeemed you in Christ, he claimed your entire being as his own. Nothing about you belongs to you. It is all God's. Therefore, the vices we are considering this morning are related to either your thought life, your deeds, or your words. For instance, think about sexual immorality. This vice can include a plethora of other sins, such as adultery, fornication, pornography, and anything that falls outside of the confines of marriage. Moreover, all of these vices can express themselves physically, mentally, or even verbally. So the point Paul is seeking to make is that we must live in purity of mind, body, and lips. Everything that is not pure must be put off. Therefore, the lack of specificity in Paul's language is meant to keep us from making any convenient exceptions. All sexual immorality, all impurity, all covetousness, all filthiness, all foolish talk, and all crude joking must be put off. Now, by the way, let me say something interesting here. Those three vices that Paul mentions in verse 4 do not show up anywhere else in the New Testament. This is the only verse in which they are used either by Paul or any other New Testament writer. But the context itself tells us that all these words have a sexual connotation embedded in them. For instance, 
the first one in verse 4, filthiness, is translated in other versions of the Bible as obscene talk. Obscene talk. So it's clear that at least in this particular section of the Bible, the dominating vice that Paul has in mind is that of ongoing immorality, ongoing sexual immorality. Notice how the the language that Paul uses uh, in verse five, everyone who is sexually immoral, there is a practice. There is an ongoing pattern of life. So I will take immorality as the main vice being addressed here. Now, let let me give you the four reasons why these vices will keep someone from entering the kingdom of God. Paul's argument will go from the lesser to the greater, from the lesser to the greater. You will detect a sense of incremental severity as we move along. So here's the first one. Here's the first reason. Ongoing immorality negates our call to love God and others. Ongoing immorality negates our call to love God and to love others at a basic level. The sin, the sins involving any sort of immorality or impurity are able to preclude someone from entrance into the kingdom of God because these sins are motivated by a true and settled refusal to be imitators of God and to walk in love which are the very core and the essence of the Christian life. Where do I get that from? The very first word in verse three. What is that word? But at the beginning of verse three, by using that word, Paul's Paul desires to create a stark contrast between what he already said in the previous two verses and what he's about to say. The word, but in verse three is there to explain that what Paul is about to say is the opposite of imitating God and walking in love. That initial word is there to point out that the following vices negate our call to be imitators of God and us beloved children and to walk in love as Christ loved us. Therefore, the immediate conclusion is that when we use our thoughts, when we use our deeds, and when we use our words to engage in any sort of immorality or impurity, we are essentially denying, we are negating God's main call upon our lives, which is to love him and to love others. It is a failure to love. Why is this the case? I will explain that when we get to point number three. Let's continue in our progression and keep moving forward. Number two, why does ongoing sexual immorality will keep someone from entering the kingdom of God? Here's number two. Ongoing immorality is a denial of our new identity in Christ. Our new identity in Christ. Consider verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among whom? Saints. It is truly, truly unfortunate how the word saint has been hijacked by the Roman Catholic Church. And it has been given a meaning that is actually foreign to scriptures. 
Many people have been trained to think of the word saint as someone who belongs to a Christian elite, a separate category, one who has reached a superior level of holiness and who far surpasses the regular Christian. This has created a devastating and harmful dichotomy or distinction that the Bible knows nothing about. What is that dichotomy? The dichotomy between the regular Christian and the super Christian, also known as the saint. Well, that, that person is a saint. I'm not a saint. Have you heard of that before? As an excuse for sin? This separation has been destructive, but in all actuality, it does not exist. There is no such thing as a super Christian. All Christians are saints because all Christians have been set apart for God, justified in Christ and are being sanctified by the spirit. If you are not a saint, you are not a Christian. Are there different levels of spiritual maturity? Of course there are. Some are further along in their walk with Christ while others are brand new or somewhere in between. But the designation saint applies to all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. All those in this room who are believers in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins are called saints. This is our identity. So on the one hand, we are saints positionally because of our union with Christ. On the other hand, we are becoming saints practically because of the work of the spirit. Brothers and sisters, we are saints. This is what we are. Therefore, immorality of any kind, whether in thought, word, or deed, is a denial of the new reality in which we now live. You and I must remember that even though there is a future consummation of our salvation, we have been already raised with Christ and we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. According to Ephesians chapter two, our transformation has not yet been finalized, but it has been started. Therefore sin will have no dominion over us. We have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must live like it. Immorality is a serious denial of this truth. But let's take it a step further. Number three. Number three. Ongoing immorality is essentially self worship. Self-worship. As I mentioned before, I want to spend a few moments looking at this one vice that the apostle Paul mentions in verse three and in verse five, namely covetousness, covetousness. This is of course, you will know the last of the 10 commandments. You shall not covet in a general sense. The word covet means to have a sinful desire for that which does not belong to you. It is a form of spiritual theft. The Greek word is pleonexia. And with the passing of time, uh, some philosophers took it upon themselves to study the meaning of this word, which is very interesting. One philosopher defined it this way. 
This is pleonexia. This is coveting. A ruthless self-seeking and an arrogant assumption that others and things exist for one's own benefit. Now, I like that definition. I would say it is correct, but Paul takes it a step further. Here, covetousness is determined by the context. And this is primarily about sexual coveting, immoral coveting, impure coveting. The word can also be translated as greed. So turn to chapter four of Ephesians verse 19. Consider how the word, the, the exact same word covetousness is used in verse 19. Paul says that non-believing Gentiles, listen to this, have given themselves up to what? Sensuality, sexual sins. And then he says, greedy, the exact same word, covetous, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Therefore, this covetousness of chapter five, verses three and five is to be understood as a deep, lustful desire that controls someone's life. There's plenty of this going on in our culture. And even more scary, there's plenty of this going on within the church. But Paul doesn't stop there. In fact, you will notice that this is the only vice on this list that Paul takes the time to define in more specific terms. Did you notice that? He adds this qualifying statement. Covetousness is what? Idolatry. Idolatry of what? Idolatry of the self. Idolatry of the self through immorality and impurity. Listen carefully here. Sexual sin in whatever form is not ultimately an issue of worshiping sex itself. Sexual sin is just an offering that you bring to yourself. It is self-worship. The seriousness of sexual immorality of any form then is seen in the fact that it's an attempt to dethrone God and replace it with the self. It is very serious in the eyes of God. Ongoing sexual immorality is a sure sign that the self is king, not God. So let me say this, and I say this with love, and I say it very seriously. If you are engaged in any form of ongoing sexual sin, you must listen to these words. You are not God. Now, you may say to me, well, I know that. Don't be silly. That's a ridiculous thing to say, to which I would reply, then why do you keep worshiping yourself through sexual immorality as though you were? You keep bringing offerings. But this brings us to the most severe of all reasons. Why ongoing immorality will keep someone from entering the kingdom of God. Here it is, number four. Ongoing immorality signifies the absence of the spirit. Verse five, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Here is Paul's definitive statement, and it requires some explanation, so please listen carefully. Paul says that those who practice, those who practice sexual immorality, impurity in whatever form, and whether in thought, word, or deed, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. There is nothing more severe than that. There is, there is no greater condemnation. There's nothing greater or deeper than this. But the key word here is the word inheritance. Inheritance. Paul has used this word already in the book of Ephesians. You will remember in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Let's read that together. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise too. The promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of what? Our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We immediately notice from this, these two verses in chapter one, that the presence of the spirit in the believer's life is the guarantee of the future. What? Inheritance, which is referenced to final redemption. And then consider chapter four, verse 30. Of Ephesians. Paul here makes again a connection between the spirit and final redemption when he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What is the point? Consider the logic of both verses. 114 and 430, the indwelling presence of the spirit today guarantees our inheritance tomorrow. What does it mean then when Paul says in chapter five, verse five, that those who are sexually immoral or impure or covetous have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? What does it mean? It means that the reason why they continue in their sin without repentance is precisely because they never had the seal, which guarantees the inheritance Otherwise, they would have the inheritance. You see, it is not that they lost the seal of the spirit. They never had it. Think about it with me. If you can lose the seal, then in what sense was it a seal to begin with? If you have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, but then you can be unsealed, then what is the point of the seal to begin with? The sealing of the spirit is forever. It guarantees our future inheritance. If you don't get the inheritance, it can only be because you never had the seal. The ongoing practice of sexual immorality of any kind, any impurity is a manifestation of the absence of the spirit of God. It does not get any more serious than this. Now, I gave you four reasons why ongoing immorality and impurity will keep people out of the kingdom of God. But I want to be practical. I want to be practical. Carefully consider with me these three words of exhortation. These are going to come out of the verses themselves. I hope you see that. Number one, here's the first word of exhortation. Here's a call to, to, to holiness. Be radical in putting immorality to death. Be radical in putting immorality to death. Consider verse three once again. 
but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be what named among you. Filthiness, immorality, or impurity of any kind have no place in the life of a believer. You must keep them all away. They should not even be named. Interesting how Paul once again speaks about our lips, about our mouths. They should not even be named. Words matter to God. Since the very beginning, the Lord instructed the people of Israel in the proper use of their lips. Exodus chapter 23, verse 13 says this, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Even the prophet Isaiah, when he stood before the holy, holy, holy presence of God, what was the first thing that he condemned about himself? This is what he said. Woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why all this emphasis on the lips? Why is it that these things must not, must not even be named among us because out of the abundance of the heart, you know how it goes, the mouth speaks. Here's some practical advice. Do away with filthy, obscene humor, inappropriate movies, impure songs, as is proper among saints. Number two, cultivate the practice of thanksgiving. What does, what does Paul say in verse four? Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. What is the relationship between these vices and thanksgiving? Why are they set in contrast? Well, if you think about it, lack of thanksgiving or ungratefulness to God, listen, is a trademark of the unbelieving world. Is it not? In fact, ungratefulness to God is at the very root of much of the sexual perversion that we see in our world today. First, let me show you from scripture and then I will try to explain. In one of the most important and revealing chapters of the entire Bible, Paul makes this very clear. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 21, 22, 23. And 24, pay careful attention to the relationship of words and thanksgiving. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him what? Thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Did you catch that? Did you see the progression? 
Look at it again. Ungratefulness to God leads to futile, useless thinking. Verse 21. This in turn leads to foolishness. Verse 22, which then leads to blatant idolatry. Verse 23. Consequently, God gives people up to the lust of their hearts. Verse 24. Who would have thought that ungratefulness can lead to sexual immorality? How does this work? Let me see if I can work this out. What is the role of thanksgiving in the life of the Christian? What is the role? Well, there are many things we could say about thanksgiving, many benefits, many blessings that come and are associated with thanksgiving, but I will mention one. Ongoing thanksgiving to God acts as a reminder that we are not self-sufficient and that as James says, every good gift is from above ongoing thanksgiving keeps us from becoming forgetful. And we were talking about this this morning in Sunday school, forgetting. Therefore we can conclude that ungratefulness to God is a sign of forgetfulness, which means you are beginning to live for yourself. So when Paul says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, but instead let there be thanksgiving, he's telling us that ultimately only an ungrateful heart will produce filthy and inappropriate words and involve itself in immorality. What is the solution? The solution is to live your life in a constant state of, un- of gratefulness and thanksgiving to God. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul exclaimed David. And forget not all his benefits. Forget not. Ungratefulness is a sure sign of forgetfulness, which is a root cause of unrighteousness. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let me show you this. I know she's in the room. She does this every month our grace verse for the month. You know why we continue to do this month after month after month. We tell you memorize scripture, memorize scripture, memorize scripture. Here's why one of the great benefits of this practice that we have as a church is that it keeps the works of God at the forefront of our minds. So don't dismiss it as unimportant. Take advantage of this ministry. Grab one of one of these cards, take them home, use them, celebrate the goodness of God. Talk about it and then let there be a constant stream of thanksgiving in your home fueled by God's wonderful works. And finally, finally, do not be deceived. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Brothers and sisters, if I could summarize verse six, this is how I would say it. Don't believe any message, any preacher, any book, nor any thought that tries to tell you that holiness in the Christian life does not matter. Do not believe it. If anyone says to you, 
that your holiness does not matter. They are lying to you and they are placing your very soul at risk of eternal damnation. Holiness in your life does matter for it reveals who you truly are. Do not be deceived. Here's what this means. If you profess to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you insist and you persist in living, living a life of immorality, of impurity or covetousness, you may hear a voice telling you, don't worry about it. It will all be okay. Keep at it. You are forgiven anyway. But I guarantee you this, that will not be the voice of God. It is the voice of Satan. Speaking of Satan, here's how the story I was telling you at the beginning unfolded. My refusal to accept their request to marry them unleashed several events. I will highlight one. The chairman of the deacons of that particular church, a man who was supposed to be an example of godliness and servanthood, called a private meeting with me. He sat across the desk in my office and he asked, Jonathan, why wouldn't you just marry them? To which I said, because at this very moment, they are living in unrepentant sin, sexual immorality. And according to the Bible, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. I need to see repentance in their lives. Marriage will not save them. And he looked at me and he said words that I will never forget. And I quote, Jonathan, he said, your problem is that you are paying way too much attention to the Bible. And that's a quote. Now at this point, it became clear to me that I was dealing with actual demonic influence. Here's something you must know about Satan. He is a master at minimizing the consequences of sin and at questioning the truthfulness of God's word. In the garden of Eden, Satan's strategy was to convince Eve of one thing, one thing you will not surely die. He minimized the severity and the truthfulness of God's word. This is the ultimate example of what Paul means by empty words. What are empty words? Empty words are all and any words that are seeking to convince you. That are seeking to convince you. That ongoing immorality, impurity or covetous idolatry will not be punished. And that it will all be okay in the end. Because you can take refuge in the fact that you are a church member. Or in the fact that one day you walked an aisle and said that you wanted to receive Jesus as Lord. And then the rest of your life does not matter. I'm here to tell you this morning. Do not be deceived. The wrath of God is coming. Of this, you may be sure. Don't doubt it for a second. Now, let me end on a 
positive note, that man and that woman ended up repenting. It took months. It took months. I remember the first meeting we had, the man said, you are wicked. He said that to me. I was the wicked one. After months, they understood the need to separate, to repent, and they stopped living in sexual immorality. And I counseled them. They both decided to be baptized. During his baptism, the men looked at the congregation and said, I am grateful for a pastor who was willing to tell me the truth about my sin. A few months later, I officiated at their wedding. So what do we do with this? Well, some of you have been reminded of God's transforming grace. You are seeing God's power to free you from any kind of sexual sin. And for this, we must praise God. You have been reminded of the fact that God bought you and brought you out of darkness into the marvelous light of his son. But maybe you are walking in darkness today. If that's you, today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of repentance, not tomorrow. Today is the day of repentance. Christ died for sinners. So don't leave this place without the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's God's invitation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All right, let's pray. Father, you are good. You are good indeed. We thank you for the fact that even though these words can be thought of as uh, maybe strong condemnation, we know that they are not for the very fact that they are in here and that we have been able to consider them reminds us that you are a God who extends his pardon and his mercy, his forgiveness to those who forsake their sin and embrace your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to never let our guard down, but to remember, Lord, that we are in a battle. But we take comfort in knowing that we, we fight from victory. The Lord Jesus Christ has died for our sins and he rose again. Father, may we see more and more examples like that couple. Maybe, may we see more and more repentance taking place. People submitting themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and following him in obedience. Father, we give you praise for the fact that you are cleansing us and that sin will have no dominion over us because of you. Do what only you can do. Lead us into further and deeper holiness by your grace and save those who are lost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move.
Take myself and I will be 